0: Will the Republican presidential nomination fight go beyond the primaries to a contested convention? Are the rules Republicans pass to assign delegates going to lead to chaos? What's different about this election cycle? And are Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders fighting for the same voters? On episode nine of the ELB podcast, we talked to noted Republican campaign attorney, Ben Ginsberg. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. I'm Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. My guest today is Ben Ginsberg, who's a partner at the law firm of Jones Day. Ben is one of the leading election lawyers in the country. Among other campaigns, he's worked uh, as the National counsel to the Bush-Cheney Presidential Campaigns in 2000 and 2004, Uh, and he was also the National counsel to the Romney for President Campaign in 2008 and 2012. Uh, He's uh, joining us now from his offices in Washington. Uh, Welcome to the program, Ben.
1: Thank you, Rick. Nice to be with you.
0: Uh, So, I thought we could focus today on what's going on with the Republican nomination for president. Uh, You've obviously had a lot of experience working on these campaigns, and I know that you were representing Scott Walker in his 2016 presidential bid until he dropped out. Uh, And now uh, you're not representing anyone, uh, so you have no. Uh, horse in the race, but you are well situated to give us some insight. Uh, And so I wanted to start with the question of delegate math. Uh, You had a piece in the Wall Street Journal on December 28th called Flirting with a Chaotic GOP Convention, in which you talk about what would happen if there is no clear winner on the Republican side in the primary process. So I thought maybe you could spend a few minutes, walk us through all of this and uh, what happens if there is no clear winner. Uh, as we uh, end the primary season.
1: Uh, happy to. We should start off with the caveat that um, a, a contested convention or one without a clear winner is historically unlikely, if not unprecedented. Um, and so this is sort of political nerd fantasy time to, uh, to talk about the different convention scenarios. But the reality of the Republican nomination process, with all the talented candidates that are in it, plus the um, the the uh, role that super PACs now play to keep otherwise um, weakened candidacies afloat, uh, and changes to the Republican nominating process put in place with the 2012 elections. Um, really do make it more likely than it has ever been in our lifetime to have a contested convention. Um, So the way the math would work is that the Republican candidates will spend uh, the first two weeks in March only able to earn delegates on a proportional basis instead of a statewide basis, which is the way it was historically done. So that the rules when Bob Dole and george w bush and uh and John McCain won their races have been changed, so it is much more difficult for a candidate to develop momentum in the first four primary states the Iowa new hampshire South carolina um Uh, And Nevada and then roll into a Super Tuesday with a lot of winner-take-all states like was done in the past because there's proportional voting instead. So that makes it much more difficult for um, for anyone to win a nomination quickly. As a result of that, um, it is it is going to be a more elongated process. Uh, on top of that, Republicans are used to fighting a primary battle with an establishment candidate and a more conservative candidate. This time, there may be a third lane added. It looks like there is a third lane added, and that's a Trump lane. And so uh, if you have three uh, groups of candidates seeking out delegates and winning delegates, that mathematically makes it more difficult for any one candidate to get to a majority by the time the convention takes place. So that's why everyone is, um, is sort of interested in the, uh, in the idea of uh, a potentially contested convention.
0: You had talked in your piece about uh, three different scenarios, a clear winner, and again uh, I think you have made it clear that that's still the most likely option. We also talk about the clear cluster and the party buster. And I thought yeah. maybe you could explain those two scenarios.
1: Sure. Well, the clear cluster is when no one candidate is close to a majority. So then we get into sort of the the old fashioned kind of convention, uh, except there are no brokers left in the Republican Party, but the old kind of convention where different groups are trying to peel off delegates. Um, that's sort of a fair fight scenario in which people will get very heated, but it is understood that no one has a natural right to the nomination. The party buster scenario is when there is one clear leading candidate who is close to a majority of delegates, but doesn't have a majority of delegates. And then if that one candidate is ganged up upon by other candidates to keep the presumptive or leading candidate from actually getting the nomination that he or she will, I I suspect, go to the convention thinking they're entitled to. That's where you have really deep divisions within the party, hence the term party buster.
0: One thing I was struck by, which you just mentioned and was in your piece, is that there there are no more brokers because it seems to me, I don't know, 40 years ago, maybe you would have been one of those brokers. Do do you think (laughs) that... the Republican Party's done itself a disservice in how it's both the move to the proportional voting as well as kind of the democratizing of the process. Do you think it makes it harder for the party to function
1: well? Well, I think there are a whole bunch of examples, um, not only politically, but also legislatively, where um, the, the lack of central party authority either on a national level or state level, makes it means there are no brokers and does make it harder to function politically and legislatively. I, I think that back in the old days, there would have been state party chairman or mayors or governors who would have named the delegates and could have commanded the delegates loyalty at a convention. I think now the way both parties, although this will come home to Ruth sooner in the Republican Party, obviously, um, but those delegates are really not bound to any party leaders or elected leaders for the most part. Uh, They're only required to vote according to the will of their states on the first ballot, uh, but not subsequent ballots. And so um, if you believe in neat orderly conventions, coming up with a quick nominee it's a disservice if you are a lover of chaos then i suppose it's a plus
0: well it certainly would get more attention to the convention if, uh, if there was something going on
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, well that's certainly true the tv networks the national broadcast networks uh have pretty much said they're only going to air uh the the nominee's speech on the fourth night of the convention i believe that if the actually was a contested convention, they would show some more interest. Uh,
0: now, now, you mentioned that in, uh, after the 2012 elections, uh, there were these changes in the delegate math put in place. Uh, if you could go back and redo that, do you think that there would have been a better way to try to structure, especially given this, uh, this particular uh, race where there are so many potentially viable candidates?
1: Yeah, I think if you look at this calendar, it is sort of a themeless pudding. Uh, And the rules changes were put in place as as sort of a coalition from two different groups. One group, longtime members of the National Committee, um, took the position that the party was better off if more states became involved and it was an elongated process. They were, by and large, never people who had actually worked for a candidate, uh, because I think everyone who works for a candidate is in favor of quick wins for their candidate. But there was a, a, a slice of the national convention that wanted an elongated process so there wouldn't be a national primary. Uh, there was another group of, of delegates to the 2008 convention uh, that, who were basically grassroots conservatives who believed that the establishment had the decks stacked for them uh, with a lot of winner-take-all states bunched up on Super Tuesday. Um, Of course, the great irony of that is that the grassroots conservative lane of the Republican Party in 2016 seems to be um, pretty well occupied by Ted Cruz, uh, and it's actually the establishment wing that will benefit from additional time in an elongated process to coalesce around a candidate.
0: So I want to move from the convention back to the upcoming set of primaries. How do you think this cycle differs from previous election cycles, and why? Is this something about the Republican electorate? And on this point, I'm thinking of a recent piece that David Frum wrote in The Atlantic, describing a divide between the Republican elite and Republican masses on issues like immigration and trade. Do you think there's something different, or, or is it uh, the Trump personality? What, what do you think is uh, distinctive about this election cycle?
1: Well I think it's a number of factors. I don't think it's one factor. Uh, I think this cycle is different because there are simply many more talented Republican candidates in the field to be able to win delegates. I think that there is, and you really see this in both parties in the candidacy of Donald Trump into Bernie Sanders, a angered electorate less enamored of the 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 elected class of officials um, who we have, so I think I think David Frum's piece raises that point, and I think it I think it's correct. I do think super PACs make this a different sort of a cycle, just because of the way the the funding will work to keep candidates alive uh, longer than they might be otherwise. And lastly, I think the primary calendar changes make it a different cycle in terms of being much more difficult to get an early win in March, more elongated through the process, fewer winner-take-all states up front.
0: If we could just imagine the counterfactual where the election, uh, the candidates are exactly the same, but there's no Donald Trump, do you think we'd be seeing something that looks very different? Or do you think we'd be having kind of similar conversations about uh, what the next few months are going to look like?
1: Um, My guess is that I mean, I think that I think Donald Trump is a unique figure in American politics. So the conversations would not be exactly the same, Um, except for Donald Trump. All those other factors are still present. I mean, you can't you can't deny the fact of an electorate that it is in a different place from where it usually is when Bernie Sanders is doing so well in the Democratic primary. He's not Donald Trump. It's still shaken up that race a great deal.
0: Yeah, and I was struck by uh, these stories that are coming out about how uh, Trump and Sanders are maybe pulling from the same pool of voters, or at least an overlapping pool of voters. Uh, So you think this says something more about the state of the electorate overall than about the state of the political parties? Or does it say that the political parties are not providing enough of a clear signal as to what they stand for? Because Trump is certainly not a traditional uh, Republican, and and Sanders is not a traditional Democrat, he calls himself a socialist.
1: I I think since the McCain-Feingold erstwhile reforms went into place in 2004, that you have seen a weakening of the parties generally, and therefore the party brand, combined with um, it being just much more difficult to govern, especially in Congress, because the leaders have less candy to be able to give to members and candidates. So what you're seeing is a more dysfunctional government and a weakened Republican and Democratic brand so that uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are sort of the personification of an angered electorate and less party cohesion.
0: Do you expect on either the Democratic or Republican side that this could lead to some kind of splintering, uh, independent candidacy, third party candidacy, something where the general election is going to look different than uh, the parties coalescing around their chosen uh, nominees?
1: Um, I, I don't think that's impossible, but I think it's too soon to, to really gauge the chances of that.
0: All right, and finally, I want I want to just ask you a few questions uh, about your role as uh, the general counsel for presidential campaigns. It's really a unique kind of job, <laughs> and I wanted to ask you how would you compare to the other work that you've done as an election lawyer, in terms of the type of work you do, but also the stress and pressure of the job.
1: <laughs> well, uh, all the work I've done for political candidates has been nothing but joyous. Um, but but being the, the counsel to a presidential campaign really is unique. Um, it is a combination of a startup business because you know you you start off with nothing and you've got hundred million dollars inside of uh, inside of a year. So that's a, a rapidly growing startup with all the legal challenges that startups face. You've got the political regulation uh, aspects of it, um, which are uh, it is a heavily regulated area, uh, even without the candidates taking taxpayer funding anymore. Uh, and so there are a host of, of election law regulatory issues. And then inevitably, things like uh, the delegate selection process and uh, rules issues, party rules issues come, become part of the lawyer's portfolio. Uh, and i guess the last element is the very intense scrutiny from the media and following by the public of your client in that situation so there's nothing quite like a presidential campaign um nothing quite like the highs and the lows and uh the excitement of it i hope everybody who um who hears this gets a chance to uh to go out and work for uh, for the candidates they prefer.
0: Well, do you think that uh, going forward, the role of the general counsel is going to become more of a uh, a, a, a role as a, a political advisor, or maybe it already has been? Do you, do you did you find yourself when you were in this space giving political advice as opposed to just legal advice to the campaigns?
1: Oh, I think you have to be pretty careful to know what your lane is inside a campaign, and. There are some areas where the legal advice has political ramifications, but I was, I've never been in the position of going to a candidate and saying, I think you really ought to do more TV advertising in the northwest part of the state with this message so you can reach 18 to 25-year-olds. That's not the job of a lawyer.
0: Right. Well, Ben Ginsberg, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to the ALB podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Rick, happy to, and uh, it's great you're doing this series, and uh, we look forward to hearing them. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye.
0: The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenkline. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN. Used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan. Goodbye.